0: Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up Podcast and the 12-week Torah series. As we continue through the first five books of the Old Testament, we've now concluded the book of Genesis and the Book of Exodus, and you've made your way to your favorite book of the entire Bible, the book of Leviticus. I say that tongue-in-cheek because most people they give up about this time. In fact, I was listening to a podcast just earlier with some friends of mine who have started an Old Testament podcast called Uh, In with the Old, if you want to go check that out. Uh, But they made a statement that Leviticus is where Bible reading plans come to die. And so we hope that that's not true for you and that you're not going to throw in the towel now. Uh, Because probably you've made your way through Genesis okay. It's full of excitement and adventure. And there's stories developing, characters being developed. Then you get to uh, the beginning of Exodus the same way because you've got the stories of Moses, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea. Then you get to Mount Sinai and things kind of slow down. The story stops progressing and we get a lot more technical details about the law and it gets repeated as you start to hear about the tabernacle furnishings. And so some of you are persevering just to get through the latter half of the book of Exodus and you think, hey, maybe I've made it to gentler waters and things are going to be up from here. And then you start reading through Leviticus and then you start to despair a little bit. Uh, But just hold on and keep pushing forward and keep studying and uh, listen along with this podcast, and we'll try to provide enough meat for you to chew on to keep your curiosity piqued, because these are all part of God's Word, and God's Word is is inspired for our growth and for our um, maturity spiritually. And I think that if we would take the time and dedicate uh, more brain power and focus upon these passages and allow God to speak, I think maybe we could walk away edified and we would actually reap from this field of, of spiritual wisdom. And so let's take a look at the book of Leviticus. Um, the name itself reminds us that this is spoken primarily, initially at least, to the Levites. The Levites are um, the offspring of the tribe of Levi, one of the sons of uh, Jacob, or Israel as his name was changed to. So one of the 12 tribes of Israel is Levi, and Aaron and his descendants become the priests, the Levitical priests, and they are going to be the ones who mediate the presence of God to the people. They're the go-between between the Israelite nation and God himself. And so they are going to be tasked with this burden of performing the ceremonies and sacrifices that the people of God have to do. And really, Leviticus is all about these sacrifices. Uh, But the whole book can be divided up into four or five sections. Uh, It first starts talking about offerings. uh, Then it gets into the order and the roles of the priesthood. It gets into purity laws. And then it gets to the middle of the book. And this is really the focal point of the entire book of Leviticus, which is the Day of Atonement. Because it is this one day and this one event, this one uh, sacrifice that is going to atone for the sins of the people, which is the one thing that they desperately need. They need atonement. Because up to this point, they aren't really on the right foot with God. They have already violated his commands. They've already built a golden calf. um, And they're just human, too. So they're full of sin. And sinfulness cannot commune with God. Otherwise, God wouldn't have thrown Adam and Eve out of the garden. He would just left them there. But God isn't content in leaving people separated from him. He is in the process of restoring people back to himself. And that's what the Day of Atonement is about and what many of these other sacrifices are about. Uh, But you move on from there and you get into uh, some... Um, more regulations about uh, cleanliness and purity, and and finish off with tithes and vows. And we'll talk about some of those other segments and probably spend a whole day, a whole segment or or episode on the Day of Atonement. But today I just want to lean into the offerings, this first section that you are currently reading through. And the offerings... That are made are divided up into the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the fellowship offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and disposal offerings. And I want to really talk about this burnt offering first of all because it's the first one mentioned and it is one that is not really new. We've seen burnt offerings made already before the Mosaic Law was ever given we've seen burnt offerings from Noah when he got off the ark. And I think probably the first burnt offering we ever encounter, even though it's not called a burnt offering, is the offering that Abel brings when Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices before God. One of the reasons I think it was a burnt offering is because he pulls out the fatty portions. And if you're reading through the book of Leviticus, you keep coming across this idea of the fat lobe of the liver, and it's these fatty portions inside of these bulls and these other animals that are being sacrificed, that is being offered to God, and it becomes a sweet aroma to God. He likes this. Now, this is different than maybe some other pagan cults where they actually feed their gods. God's not hungry. God's not sitting up in heaven hoping that we'll give him something to eat. He doesn't need anything to eat, Um, but when it uses that reference, it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. It's showing that God is pleased with it, just like he was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, and he's pleased with Noah's sacrifice. He's pleased when The people of God honor him with the best. These fatty portions are the best. That's the good flavor. No one wants a lean steak. No one wants uh, a dried out piece of meat. And so by giving it to God, these fatty portions, you're giving him the best. Now, the burnt offering was a little different than most of the other offerings because it was burnt up completely. There was nothing left. Many of the other sacrifices you're going to see in the Levitical law are partially given to the priesthood for them to eat, which is one of the reasons that God establishes this system of sacrifice, because the Levites, if you remember, they are not going to inherit a plot of land. All the other tribes of Israel are going to be given land. So they're going to have places to farm. They're going to have places to grow crops. They're going to have places to raise their livestock. And so they're going to have meat on the table. They're going to have milk from their livestock. They're going to have vegetation that's growing in their plantations. But the Levites are left with nothing. They're just given jobs to work for these different tribes. They're to mediate God's presence to these tribes. So God is taking care of the Levites by implementing this sacrificial system. So he's telling them to bring fellowship offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. And in doing so, they're actually putting meat and food on the table for the Levites. So they have something. They will forever, perpetually be um, provided for through the sacrificial system. It's one of the main things. Uh, but these burnt offerings, some, most of these offerings have great symbolism that actually carry over into the New Testament. The book of Hebrews compares Christ to the burnt offerings, and he says that Christ's body given is far superior because it provides eternal atonement, whereas the death of goats and bulls and sheep, they, it can't provide eternal atonement. But yet, if you don't know about the Levitical system, if you've skipped to this book, over and over, then you're not really familiar with that comparison. And so the potency of Christ's sacrifice is weakened. And that's why it's important that we study our Old Testament so that it gives the flavor and potency to the New Testament when we read it. And that's uh, crucial. It It is built upon and written upon a an understanding that you have the knowledge of the Old Testament uh, in your head as you read through the New. So let's do that. Let's put that in our heads. Let's think about these things. So the burnt offering is brought to the Levites. It says it's to be offered twice a day, and the resources that I've consulted, you look through other portions of Scripture, like in the book of Numbers, and it talks about the burnt offering being offered twice a day. And I started to ask some questions. Like, okay, burnt offering twice a day, is that twice a day for every person? or what, because if there are millions of people, that's the estimate that there are either hundreds of thousands or up to a million people in the wilderness right now. And if they all have to bring a sacrifice twice a day, that's a lot of animals, a millions of animals daily. And that's a lot of priests needed to take care of those sacrifices daily, because I don't know if you've ever butchered a large animal. I have, I've butchered a moose before. I'm not going to get through that in a day. It takes a long time. And these Levites, even if you had four of them for every animal, that's still too much work for any given day. And though I can't find any clarity on this, I don't have a million resources on the book of Leviticus because I'm have been more of a New Testament scholar up to this point. I'm slowly collecting a larger and larger library all the time. But in the resources I have and my online resources, I'm not really nailing this down. But here's the conclusion I've come to and just examining this and talking with others and sort of bouncing ideas off other people. I, I think that what we have here is a description of when the priest would accept the burnt offerings. So they will accept them in the morning and the evening. It's kind of like their hours of operation, that you can bring a burnt offering... If you're going to bring one, you've got to bring it between the hours of nine and noon and the hours of six and nine or something like that. And so twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, they are doing the task of burnt offering sacrifices. And when you brought a burnt offering, you would bring it in and the worshiper, meaning the one who was providing the the cattle, providing the birds, whatever it was they were offering up, they would lean on the animal and they would slit the animal's throat as the worshiper leaned on the animal. Now, why are they leaning on the animal? Well, this is symbolic of the animal bearing the weight of their sin. This becomes very um potent in the day of atonement where we have the symbolism of the scapegoat and all of that. But even for the burnt offering sacrifice, which is foundational to all these other sacrifices, we see the symbolism there of the sin of humanity being pressed down upon this animal that dies in their place. They're supposed to die for their sin, but this animal dies instead. And that's why when Christ comes and ultimately we we lean on him and we are putting our lives building our lives on the foundation of christ because he bore our sin this symbolism is embedded in what god has already done in the old testament text and so we look at this offering and we're reminded of christ's sacrifice the grain offerings fellowship offerings they're usually made in tandem with the burnt offerings according to the research i've done and we see that the fellowship offering comes after the burnt offering, because you cannot have fellowship with God until you've had atonement made. So we can't have fellowship with God now until we've had atonement made through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You cannot come to the Father unless you come to the Son, and the offerings remind us of that. Now, the sin offering and guilt offering are very similar to one another, but I see some interesting concepts here that uh, really remind me of some of the New Testament readings I've done. The sin offering, it says in chapter 6, verse 4 of Leviticus, it says that when you are making this sacrifice, you are supposed to go and make good, make restitution, or be restored to the person that you've sinned against. So if you stole something from somebody, before you even bring the sin offering, you've got to go and first pay back what you stole. And then after that, you go and you offer the sin offering. Now, I think that's very significant because when you get into the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, it says if you have some kind of squirmish with your neighbor or your brother, and you're going to come and bring a a gift to the altar of God, it says first go and make things right with your brother, and then come and bring your gift. Then come and bring your sacrifice. And I think that is mirroring what's said here in Leviticus six. For, is this sin offering. You go and you've got to make things right with the person and then come and make your sacrifice to God. Not only does this help us restore our relationships, which, once again, we are trying to be restored back to Eden here. That's what God's doing. That's what he's working on is restoring his presence and he's restoring his people. So this sin offering is a way that he prevents people from sinning against one another and being in contention all the time. But, um, So this is a deterrent. It's a deterrent because why would you go steal something that's worth, let's say, $20 if you have to turn around and pay back the $20 and then on top of that make a sacrifice that is much more costly than the $20 that you stole? So it's a deterrent. I'm not going to steal because I'm going to end up poorer than when I stole in the first place. And the whole purpose of stealing would have been to come out on top financially, and you're actually going to miss out. And maybe it's not stealing, maybe it's some other sin, but the point is that these sacrifices are here and instituted to be a deterrent against sinning against your brother. And so they are a deterrent, and they also provide a path of restoration and restitution uh, so that humanity's relationships can be restored. So that's another purpose of these offerings. And these sacrifices, is to feed the Levites and make sure they're provided for, to deter people from sin, to be uh, restored uh, from our sin, to have our sins atoned for. And then probably one of the last things that we'll talk about when it comes to uh, purity, uh, or when it comes to Leviticus, is purity and cleanliness. Because there are many references to being clean versus being unclean. And when we talk about the people in the Old Testament and God, they didn't have access to God. In fact, God had already told Moses that he wasn't going to go with these obstinate people. They were stiff-necked, and they had sinned against him. He wasn't going to go with them. And Moses begs and pleads. He says, please, if you don't go with us, then we're not distinct from the people of the world. If you're not in our midst, then we've got nothing. We might as well go back to Egypt. And so God is going to go with them, but he is making several provisions, several things that have to happen. And if they don't happen, then they're in trouble. In fact, people can die if they do not keep these commands. And these commands are regarding a clean state versus an unclean state. And you've got to remember that clean and unclean doesn't always correlate to right and wrong. So you can be doing something that's not wrong. like You can be acting righteously and still be unclean based on what happens in your life. So um, if you are are a woman and you're on your menstrual period, you're unclean for those days. And then following that, there's a waiting period under the Old Testament law and some ritual cleansing, and then, boom, you're clean again. But it's not like you sinned by having a a menstrual period. And then someone who touches a dead body, they're considered unclean. Well, if someone dies, somebody's got to take care of the body, you can't just leave it there to rot and stink in the street, so you got to go take care of it. But that doesn't mean that you've sinned. That just means that you have entered into a condition in which you cannot come into the presence of God. Because God is holy, he's different, he's distinct, and he is just setting parameters. He's saying, listen, if you guys are going to come into my presence, it's going to have to be according to... This set of laws, this set of procedures, this set of rules, yeah, you can't bring your sin in here, but you also have these other barriers keeping you from me. And it's just a reminder that God is holy, and to enter into his presence is probably going to be temporary at this point, because the whole system is temporary. The whole Levitical system was never meant to be a conclusion to the sin problem, It was meant to push things along until the Messiah came and took care of the sin problem. I like to refer to it as a credit card. If you go to the store and you take milk off the shelf and walk out, you've stolen. But if you swipe the card, then they're not going to arrest you for stealing because you paid. But you didn't actually pay yet. You just swiped a piece of plastic. You still owe a debt. And that's what was happening every time a bull was killed and burnt on an uh, altar. That's what happened every time a bird was brought in and burnt on an altar. That's what happened every time one of these grain offerings were made. It wasn't like there was a a finality to this and that there was a conclusion to people's sin and that atonement had now been reached, but rather this was pushing things along. But eventually your debts have to be settled. And when Jesus came and said, it is finished on the cross, he was settling those debts. And so that's what we have here. We have a temporary solution to a problem that will be finished and finalized in the presence of Jesus Christ. We'll pick up on some more of these themes and continue this talk on the Levitical priesthood in our next episode. We'll see you then on the Bible Brush It